Let us begin our Good Friday sermon with prayer. God most holy, look with mercy on this, your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed, be given over into the hands of the wicked, and suffer death upon the cross. Keep us always faithful to him, our only Savior, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the Passion History in the combined accounts of Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, Mark 15, verse 39, and Luke 23, verses 46 through 48. When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus with him saw how he cried out and breathed his last, the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified. The centurion began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. Truly, this man was the Son of God. When all the groups of people who had gathered to see this spectacle saw what had happened, they returned home beating their chests. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Tonight, we look at Christ's lifeless body on the cross. And throughout this passion history, we have focused on the highlights where we see glimpses of Christ's divine glory. We wrap that up tonight as we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when Christ's death converts sinners. Now, the word sinner alone really has a lot of implication to it. Visit any penitentiary you would like and interview the inmates. You would be surprised how many of them they're the ones who know if they did their crime or not, would tell you things like, well, I didn't have a very good attorney. Well, if it wasn't for this one juror, well, this person lied on the witness stand. It is very rare that you will hear them say, yeah, I raped that person and ruined their life. Yeah, I lost my temper and beat that person so bad they were unable to work. Yeah, I robbed that person, and by the time they finally got the money back, they didn't need it as badly as they did when I took it from them. But are you and I any different? How dare God call that a sin? God needs to accept me for who I am. How dare you point out my sin? See, for somebody to come around and admit that they aren't righteous, that not only takes the accusation of the law, but to admit that God is holy and we are not holy before him, that takes a miracle. And so it is that that centurion looking up at Christ's lifeless body could have given a lot of excuses. I'm a Roman soldier and I was trained to obey orders. You don't understand what would have happened to me. I wouldn't have just gotten fired if I had turned around and said, uh, Pilate, this is an innocent guy. What about the crowd beating their chests as they walked away? Surely some of them had cried out Hosanna on Palm Sunday. Not everybody who shouted out crucify, crucify on the morning of Good Friday were crying out Hosanna on Palm Sunday, but and neither was everyone crying out Hosanna. They're shouting crucify on Good Friday. But surely, surely some of the people beating their chests as they went away had done both. They could have come up with excuses, but the Sanhedrin, our religious leaders, had pushed us to do it. But... As they see the lifeless body of Christ, 
Suddenly, the law has accused them. They stop making up excuses. This is where the centurion gives that confession when he says, this man really was righteous. Recall several weeks ago when we preached on Pilate's wife saying have nothing to do with that. Sometimes it gets translated innocent. Other times it gets translated righteous man. And I told you that Christ's righteousness was one that would actually be a standard. If you want to know what righteousness is, you look at the law. But we always resent looking at the law because we are sinners and the law always accuses us. It always shows that we have fallen fallen short. It always shows that we are not righteous. But Christ is righteous. This centurion is recognizing, I had to observe this. And if that's all he did, guarding those three men who were crucified, just sitting there keeping his lip zipped, showed he was unrighteous. And he finally spoke out those words. What would lead him to recognize all of this? Well, recall several weeks ago, or last week, when we looked at the darkness showing that Jesus is God. Let's review that. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a supernatural darkness. And then, after Christ spoke up and dies, then there's an earthquake, as our text in Matthew 27, verse 51 says, the earth shook and rocks were split. Creation itself displayed a terrifying power and people were terrified. I am unrighteous. And that's what the law does. The law comes to us and shakes us and says, you are not righteous. And what are we going to do about it? Notice the confession. This man really was righteous. See, the rays of divine glory is seen in Christ's passion. When when, when Christ's death converts sinners is that it converted sinners to believe they are not righteous, but that Christ is righteous. Christ is righteous for you and I. And that's why our sins of unrighteousness, although you and I weren't there putting the nails in his hands, we are just as responsible. Christ died for us. He lived for us. And we know what's going to happen on Sunday. On the morning of Sunday, Easter morning, he's going to rise for us. And so we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when Christ's death converts sinners showing it converts sinners to believe they are not righteous, but Christ is righteous and he is their righteousness. What a beautiful confession this centurion gives to us. But you know, as he says Christ is righteous, how would he come to recognize the, ne- the rest of his confession in which he says, truly, this man was the son of God? Now, just like that penitent criminal who we covered a few weeks ago, surely this centurion would have heard something about Jesus in his time that he was serving in Jerusalem. But most of what he heard and saw occurred that day. 
Just like the penitential criminal, let me review the sermon this centurion heard that day as recorded in Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44. At the same time, two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. People who passed by kept insulting him, shaking their heads and saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He hears that Jesus has claimed to be the son of God just by what the crowd in their mocking says. But then our text continues. In the same way, the chief priests and experts in the law and elders kept mocking him. They said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Keep in mind, the centurion is going to hear Jesus tell the penitent criminal that he's saved when he tells that penitent criminal, truly, truly, this day you will be with me in paradise. But let's continue hearing what the chief priests and elders and scribes said. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him because he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept insulting him. Now, a lot of people think this centurion growing up in a pagan world would have thought, much like Zeus had several sons, that Jesus was just some kind of God. But no, the confession of the Jewish people's mocking him made it clear this is the son of God. And when the penitent criminal hanging there on the cross, he actually confesses he's unrighteous. We're getting what we deserve. But then he begs the Lord for mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus tells him, you will be with me in paradise today. Only true God could give such a promise. And then the darkness comes along that is supernatural. And at the end of the darkness, recall Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Nobody gets to pick the moment of their death. We'd like to think we could. And I do not in any way want to make light of suicide. But even people who have tried to commit suicide and God has said, no, that's not going to happen. I have met in my life several people who literally put the barrel of a gun in their mouth and missed. They did damage to the side of their face. They defied the laws of physics. God said, no, you're going to live. And the ones I've met were thankful later for the life God gave them. But Jesus... Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, it looks like Jesus has been murdered, but he used the murderous intentions of everyone to put himself on the New Testament altar where he, true God, who has taken on human flesh, will die for our sins. He, the high priest who is true God, will separate his own soul from his body and he will put it in the hands of the Father. He will raise himself and the Father will raise him and the, and, and the Holy Spirit will raise him on Sunday morning. In all of this, this man begins to recognize, whoa, nobody gets to pick the moment of their death. And one of the things we don't realize is it usually took two to three days for a person to die from crucifixion. It was a slow torturing to death. And usually it wasn't the dehydration in that arid climate that got them. As the diaphragm quit working, they had to pump their knees so that they'd be able to breathe. And that is what did them in. 
The other two criminals were shown mercy, although it was not why they were, their legs were broken, because it was Friday and the Sabbath started when the sun set. And so when they came and broke their legs, they would only be on the cross for one day. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. The centurion recognized Jesus is true God who picked the moment of his death, separated his own soul out from his body and placed it in to the hands of the Father. He had heard that promise Jesus made earlier on that day in the morning to that penitent criminal. Truly, truly, you will be with me in paradise. And that also gave that centurion something to cling to. And so we see that centurion, as we're told, that he glorified God saying, this man really was righteous. Truly, this man was the son of God. He has a promise to cling to. That's the son of God who's gone to heaven. And the centurion is not going to heaven that day. He's not dying that day, but he can cling to that promise. As John 3.16 speaks so clearly, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He will know the gates of heaven are open to him. Rays of divine glory is seen in Christ's passion when Christ's death converts sinners. Converts sinners to believe Christ is the Son of God who became true man so that he could be righteous for us who are unrighteous so that his life would atone for our sins so that when he's forsaken by God on the cross, he suffered the punishment our sins deserve so that now you and I have been adopted to be sons of God. We are adopted children of God just like that centurion because Christ was our and is our righteousness and he has taken our punishment. He has paid our adoption price. Now again, we're told that centurion began glorifying God saying this man really was righteous. Truly this man was the son of God. He could not glorify God saying this if he was an unbeliever because his sin would stand in the way. But he gets a distinct honor just like the women were the first to see the resurrected Lord and the first to get to shout that announcement we're looking forward to on Sunday morning, he's risen. This centurion gets to be the first in Christ's death to confess, that's my God. That is the son of God. That is the righteous Lord, my substitute. Christians from then on have always confessed their Lord. Now we have confessions we use. The Apostles' Creed, as we call it, seems to have begun as a baptismal formula that people would confess as they were baptized, showing their God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons. And out of that, that's the only one that was not created in the heat of controversy. It became the outline for the Nicene Creed, dealing with people who were denying things about Jesus Christ, true God who became true man so that we would be adopted as sons of God. And out of that came that very long creed, the Athanasian Creed, that we confess on Trinity Sunday that would clarify things about the Holy Spirit and the Son as well. And during the Reformation, there would be confessions written, the Augsburg Confession, the defense of the Augsburg Confession, the small called articles. These were all written against heresies. They were written against false accusations that were being made against false teachings that they had seen from scriptures were false and showing what the true teaching was. 
And so Christians love to confess their Lord. It really began with the confession that Jesus is the Christ. As Jesus says, no one can, can, can say that Jesus is the Christ but by the Holy Spirit. And since then, we also come and as the centurion, whether he fully realized it or not, by saying Christ was righteous, he was saying, I'm not righteous. Christians love to come to the Lord and confess, I am unrighteous. Here are my sins. And then they get to hear, your sin is forgiven. And they love to confess, I believe this. This is true. They say that by saying, Amen. Yes, when a Christian shares the good news of salvation in Christ with someone who is stung by the accusation of the law, their conscience is bothering them and they say Christ washes that clean in his blood. They are confessing the Lord just like this centurion. And so we see that we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when Christ's death converts sinners, converts sinners to confess that he is the son of God who became true man so that he is the righteousness for all sinners. We are unrighteous and by being righteous for us and by dying, he's taken the punishment our sins deserve. His blood has washed them away so that we are now adopted sons of God. That's a major difference, isn't it? Walk around the streets today and point out people's sins. See how well that gets you liked. But Christians, those who have come to see Jesus as their righteousness, they're ready to be done with all the excuses of the sinful nature. They confess that it's their sins that put Christ on the cross, and they recognize how grateful they are that the Son of God took that punishment for them so that they are now sons of God. We now remain silent for a while as the lifeless body of Christ hangs on the cross. But you and I, like that centurion, recognize Christ's divinity in all of that. When Christ's death converts sinners so that they know that they're not righteous, but Christ is their righteousness. He is the son of God who became true man, lived in our place, died in our place, took the punishment for our sins in our place that he could make sure that we were adopted as God's sons, that his blood, his righteous blood would wash us clean. And so it converts you and I, sinners, to confess Jesus Christ is Lord, our Savior. Amen. Oh, sorrow, dread, God's Son is dead, but by his expiation of our guilt upon the cross gained for us salvation. Amen. <laughs>